How about now? There we go. All right, with that out of the way, the one question, church, that I have received a lot this week from you, the congregation, has been this. Why Habakkuk? I mean, why, verse 1, study some oracle or some vision that was seen around 600 B.C. by some prophet who, in all honesty, we do not even know that much about? I mean, why on earth in the year of our Lord 2021 would your pastor think it is a good idea to preach his way through the book of Habakkuk? And the answer to that question, in short, is because the book of Habakkuk is fascinatingly relevant to what we as Christians are seeing and experiencing in our society today. Now, I realize some of you might be sitting there this morning thinking, Come on, Pastor. I mean, how can a book written some 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ really be that relevant to us today? I mean, we are the people who sent astronauts into space, who invented the internet, who discovered penicillin, and who now carry a computer in our pockets called an iPhone. For we are a modern, progressive, contemporary, and sophisticated people, and thus how could it even be possible for us, a postmodern society, to learn anything from these ancient Near Eastern people and their primitive writings? And if that is any of you this morning, church, then let me point you to one of my heroes of the faith, the doctor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote, This idea that the problem of man today is different than what it has been in the past is of all the teachings the most ludicrous I am aware of. Man different? Man is no different at all. Man is still exactly as he has always been. So sure, church, the time period may change, the location of man, that may change, the way of life, the technology, the advancements, the innovation, all of that may change as well. But for man himself, man is no different, church, for man is still exactly who he has always been. And thus, because of that, church, this book called Habakkuk 
Trust me, it is just as profitable for the people of God today as it was even some 2,600 years ago when it was written. Which takes us now, church, to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, when you see violence and sin and injustice in this world, do not just complain about it to others, but bring your request before God. Again, our thesis statement this morning is this. Christian, when you see violence and sin and injustice in this world, do not just complain about it to others, but bring your request before God. Thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to the Old Testament, to the minor prophets, and to the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you are joining us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know there is one located in the chairs in front of you, which is our gift to you this morning. For we want you to grab a Bible, to keep that Bible, and most importantly of all, to read that Bible starting today by turning to page 785 and joining us as we hear the word of God together this morning. For this morning, we are in Habakkuk chapter 1, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 4. For the prophet Habakkuk writes, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how good it is to gather this morning as your church and to worship you. Sure, we can have audio difficulties. Things can go wrong within the service. But we are here not for perfect production. We are here to worship a God who is in all, through all, and over all, who has sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins so that we can be reconciled back into the presence of God and into fellowship with him forever and ever and ever. For that is why we gather this morning to worship you, Father. Let's draw our minds and our hearts to you this morning. Father, we know that Christ will come again, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and yet in here and in now, at times the cup that we taste in life is not fun to bear. Father, strengthen us then with your word this morning. Strengthen us with the word of God that we read from Habakkuk this morning. Father, I pray that you open the eyes, the ears, and soften the hearts of this dear congregation to your word. Father, give me the words to speak this morning. Father, let them be humble, let them be bold, but above all else, let them truly articulate 
the truth you have given us in your word. Father, I pray that I am faithful to this task this morning. Help me, I pray, and that our service, this sermon, our communion, our songs, our offering, Lord, that it is all a sacrifice that is pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, be sure to not hate or curse or harden your heart against the world, but instead seek the Lord in prayer that he may intervene. Again, Christian, be sure not to hate or curse or harden your heart against the world, but instead seek the Lord in prayer that he may intervene. Verses 1 and 2. The prophet writes, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? So we see here, church, in verse 1, that this book is the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Or in essence, the dialogue, the discourse, the interchange that the prophet Habakkuk had back and forth with God himself in some kind of vision. However, we, before we get to this dialogue between Habakkuk and God, I first want to offer some historical context to help you understand likely what was taking place around the prophet Habakkuk at the time of this oracle. So first off, on the world stage, the Assyrian Empire, or the former superpower of the world, or in the ancient Near East, they were on the decline. For the Babylonians had overtaken the Assyrian capital city of Nineveh, and they, the Babylonians, had also defeated a group of Ephesians who came to the aid of the Assyrians in 605 B.C. in the battle at Carchemish. So in short, at this point in time, church, the Babylonians were stepping into their role as the new superpowers in the ancient Near East. However, on a more localized level, within the kingdom of Judah, where God's covenantal people were located, including that of Habakkuk, there was a king ruling there by the name of Jehoiakim who unlike his father, Josiah, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 2 Kings 22, Jehoiakim, who ruled as king for 11 years, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 2 Kings 23. And during this season of church, well, the people of God, they naturally followed his lead and also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And thus, as David Baker points out, just as Judah's northern sister Israel fell at the hands of the Assyrians due to their idolatry and other repeated violations of their covenant with God some 100 years prior, so too now was Judah falling into the very same trap. For they were rejecting the ways of God, worshiping false gods, and walking daily in wickedness and sin. And thus with the prophet Habakkuk having taken all of this in church, he then writes in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? And make no mistake here, church, for what we have here in verse 2 is a lament from the prophet Habakkuk. For these are words of grief, 
words of sorrow and words of absolute pain and distress. For Habakkuk is a man who loves the nation of Judah, who loves the people of Judah, and who loves the God of Judah. Therefore, you better believe he is upset over the sin that has permeated, penetrated, infiltrated, and is now dominating this nation of Judah. So much so that it is obvious, church, that this is not the first time the prophet Habakkuk has gone to the Lord in prayer concerning this sin issue. For he writes in verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? For it's as if the prophet Habakkuk has gone to the Lord over and over and over again, asking God, pleading with God, and begging God to do something about this. And as Mike Riccardi would put it, to make Judah great again, and to bring about a reformation, a revival, and a restoration to this dear nation of Judah. Because this was a nation, church, that was no longer devoted to godliness or faithfulness or righteousness, but instead Judah was now a nation consumed, verse 2, by violence. For they were a people who opposed one another, who terrorized one another, who threatened one another, who took advantage of one another, and if physical force needed to be used, then so be it. And yet God whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Isaiah 55 has decided at this time and in this place to not put an end to this evil. In fact, from Habakkuk's limited, finite, and human perspective, it doesn't seem as though God is doing much of anything to stop this evil from continuing to permeate throughout the land of Judah which obviously has the prophet extremely upset and distressed. Because when you truly love God, church, and you truly love his word, you naturally then want his word and his commandments and his ways to seep into every fabric of our society, since you know that blessed are those who hear the word of God and who keep it, Luke chapter 11. Therefore, let me ask you this question, Christian. When you see evil and sin and wickedness spreading throughout your city, spreading throughout your state, spreading throughout your country and throughout the world around you, what then is your natural response to it? For what is your response, Christian, when you see sin festering and growing further and further throughout society? For is it one of indifference? I mean, you're going to heaven, so who cares, right? Or is it one of hilarity? I mean, it is kind of funny, right, to see how bad the world can get. Or maybe it's even that of revenge, that you hate these people who are destroying your nation and you can't wait until they get exactly what they deserve. And I ask because... As you can see here, church, these aforementioned responses are certainly not how the prophet Habakkuk responded to the sin that was surrounding him. Because the response we see here from Habakkuk in verse 2 is that he instead went to God and asked him in short, how long? Now why exactly did Habakkuk do that, church? Well, as Ken Fentress put it, because he, Habakkuk, was disturbed 
and not amused by the sinfulness of man or of society. And thus Fentress then asks this question, for he writes, Are you then, Christian, amused by the current state of your society? Or are you instead profoundly concerned about the consequences of sin on mankind? Because if the Christian does not weep over the lostness of society, then what hope is there for society? For we are supposed to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, according to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thus I want to expand on that thought for just a second here, church, because trust me, I know it is hard to turn on the TV and to hear about another murder in York City. I know it is hard to open up the paper and to read about another politician rebuking anti-abortion legislation, and I know it is hard to turn on the radio and to hear about men cowardly beating and taking advantage of their wives, for it can be distressing and draining and downright exhausting witnessing that kind of evil day in and day out. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, we must never, and I mean never, let ourselves get to the point where we somehow become callous or indifferent or amused by the evils of this world around us because we have been called brother Christian, sister Christian to be salt and light in a world that oh so desperately needs it. For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he said this church, for he said love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Therefore church, to love our enemies, to love our communities and to love the world around us is to pray no matter how bad it gets that God would restrain evil in this world, bring about the conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment throughout this world, and bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world, and to not harden our hearts against the world, Christian. For you have a God, Christian, who not only took you from death to life, but you also have a God who plans to take this wicked and brave world and to make it a new heavens and a new earth as well for that is the power of your God church. Therefore we must remain steadfast Christian in the here and now to be salt and to be light. Praying and trusting in our God that he will one day make everything new and set everything perfectly right. Which brings us to point number two, church. Christians, simply because we see sin everywhere in this world, that does not mean that God is no longer in control. Christians, simply because we see sin everywhere in this world, that does not mean that God is no longer in control. Verses three and four. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So just as the prophet Habakkuk clearly pointed out in verse 2 that evil was running rampant throughout Judah... Here in verse 3, Habakkuk, he puts a name to it. 
And he shares exactly what is taking place. For he writes in verse 3 that there is iniquity and wrong, destruction and violence, strife and contention. For that right there, church, is everyday life in Judah. For Judah was a land where evildoers were gaining more and more power and their influence and control and authority were getting stronger and stronger each and every day as they convinced more and more people to join them in their wrongdoing, join them in their violence, and to join them in their iniquity. And the effects of all this evil church, the consequences of this violence, the repercussions of this wrongdoing and destruction and strife, as the prophet Habakkuk shares in verse 4, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. And what Habakkuk is describing here, church, is that since the evildoers in Judah were gaining such power and control and authority within this society, God's instructions to his people then, a.k.a. verse 4, the law, was no longer being followed. Instead, it was being ignored, perverted, corrupted, debased, and ultimately rejected. For the majority of the people in Judah were no longer pleased to do what was good and acceptable and perfect, but instead they were driven to do what was right in their own mind. And thus true, biblical, godly justice no longer prevailed within this society. And for those in Judah who were actually trying to be faithful to the law of God, the remnant, the righteous, the right-minded, oh, they were in a bad way, church. Because, verse 4, the wicked surrounded the righteous. So then justice, it goes forth perverted. Meaning, the righteous in Judah are suffering injustice and mistreatment at the hands of the wicked because the wicked ultimately have them hemmed in, if you will, since they are the ones that are in control. And is this not similar, church, to what we are seeing transpire today? For as the wicked in our society gain more and more power, they quickly then become more and more dogmatic, demanding that everyone instantly follows their lead. And if you don't think the same way they think, affirm the same things they affirm, or endorse the same laws that they endorse, then you must then be canceled, condemned, convicted, and cut off, for it is obvious then that you are a bigot, a racist, homophobic, narrow-minded, backwoods fundamentalist who either needs to get on the right side of history or get out of the way before this train of immorality runs you right off the track. Now we are going to pause here for a second, church, because I not only want us to grasp this concept, but I also want us to grow comfortable with this concept as well. That all this evil and injustice taking place here in Judah, and all the harsh realities and the consequences and the suffering that comes with it on this side of eternity, they are not just reserved for the wicked. For they are not just reserved for the evil, for they are not just reserved for the violent or the criminals or the unjust or the corrupt, all while the righteous sit in some kind of little bubble where no pain or evil or injustice exists. Because it ain't like that, church. 
Because when a nation's leaders and a society at large openly reject the ways of God, true, biblical, godly justice, it does not go forth. And thus, as we see here, the righteous, they will suffer. And this is what I really want to drive home today, church. Because when this suffering and injustice and mistreatment comes our way, Christian, even though our God is just and perfect and righteous and abhors this kind of evil, and even though our God has called a covenant people to himself who will be with him forever and ever and ever, that does not mean, Christian, that God will always instantly, absolutely, and completely deliver you out of your suffering in the here and now, for it does not mean that. Nor does it mean, Christian, that because you are a child of the Most High God, that when wrongdoing and injustice and mistreatment does come your way, that God will always keep you from experiencing any pain or misery or harm. For it does not mean that either. Don't believe me, church? For our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself said, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. For in this world you will have tribulation, John 16. And the Apostle Paul, he put it this way. He said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3. And thus we must not be surprised, church, when we are afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, 2 Corinthians 4, for that is the reality of this Christian life in the here and now. However, Christian... Simply because God does not deliver you instantly from a season of corruption or injustice or wrongdoing, that does not mean that he is no longer good or no longer faithful. For as Bruce Miller put it, God is not primarily committed to your security or your prosperity here on earth, Christian. For he is instead more concerned about our faithfulness to him in a world where evil still runs wild. And thus, in those seasons of life, Christian, when the wicked surround you, and you feel as though darkness is your only friend, I am telling you, church, do not cling to the whys during those seasons of life. The why is this happening to me? The why is there no relief for me? The why is the world falling apart around me? But instead, during those seasons of life, Christian, cling to the who. Cling firmly to your sovereign, loving, omnipotent, omniscient, always and forever, good and benevolent God for we are to cling to him church and to never let go and lean not on our own understanding for I read a story this week church about an English officer who shared that while he was in Belgium he met a converted Hindu man whose confession of Christ literally cost him everything For as soon as the man was baptized, all his possessions were taken from him. His home was taken from him. His friends left him and his family deserted him. And thus the English officer asked him, Sir, how then are you able to bear all of your troubles? To which the Christian man replied, Many have asked me that. However, the better question is, How am I able to now bear all of my joy? 
For I now possess a happiness in my heart like no other, since I know that Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins and that no one will ever be able to take that away from me. So yes, church, in the here and now, we may face hatred and suffering and injustice. For we might be mocked, our friends might detest us, our country might turn on us, and our justice system might even openly mistreat us. For all of that is a potential reality. Nevertheless, if and when that does occur, Christian, do not think for a second that your God is no longer God or that your God is no longer in control. Because we know, Christian, Christian, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8, that all things Christian, that everything Christian, that each and every little thing Christian works together for good according to God's purpose plan for each and every one of his children. Therefore, as you look around Christian and see sin and pain and suffering all around you, do not lose heart for your God. God is still in control, and because he is in control, he can take whatever man uses for evil and use it for your good and for his glory. Thus, rest in that, Christian, for even in the midst of your suffering, rest in a God who is omnipotent, faithful, and whose steadfast love for his children will not perish, but will endure forever. Thus, cling to that God, Christian, and lean not on your own understanding. Now, as we close this morning, I want to begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, you just heard a story about a man who, because of his faith in Jesus Christ, lost everything. His possessions, his friends, his family, his home, literally everything And yet he still came away wondering, not how he was going to contain his sorrow, but instead wondering how he was ever going to contain his joy, since he had been forgiven of his sins, reconciled back into fellowship with God forever, and that no one, and I mean no one, could ever take that away from him. For you see, non-Christian, when we develop an understanding of who we truly are, Like, when we become aware of how sinful and wretched and wicked we really are, and then sense the weight of the grace we need and that we have received to be forgiven of our sins and adopted into the family of God forever, non-Christian, I am telling you, whatever then this world has to throw our way, we consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that non-Christian, that eternal, everlasting, always and forever glory, that is available to you this morning. If, if, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God, if you place your faith in the only one non-Christian who came into this world as truly God and as truly man to save you from your sin. For Jesus Christ did for us non-Christian that which we could never do. For Jesus Christ lived for us non-Christian the life that we could never live a perfect life. For he fulfilled every aspect every precept and every requirement of the law of God for us perfectly, completely, righteously, and without any sin. 
However, non-Christian, not only did Jesus Christ fulfill the law of God for the children of God, but he also came into this world to be rejected, to die, and to be a ransom for many. For Jesus Christ came into this world to be rejected by his people, nailed to a cross at Calvary, and die a sinner's death as our very substitute, all to pay the price that we could never pay for breaking the holy law of God. And non-Christian, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did. For the perfect, righteous, sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ willingly gave up his life on behalf of sinners like you and like me. However, non-Christian being that Jesus Christ was a perfect and sinless and spotless sacrifice, his atoning work on the cross, it completely appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. Thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, he did not stay dead, but instead he was raised for our justification, for Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead, non-Christian. He defeated sin, he destroyed death, and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin and place your faith in the only one who can save you from that sin, and the God-man himself, and the Savior of the world, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And to the Christian who is here this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, make no mistake, verses 2 through 4 here, they are a lament from the prophet Habakkuk. For the prophet is sorrowful, He is regretful and he is mourning over the current state of his homeland, Judah. For he is upset and disgusted and weary about the violence and the destruction and the injustice that is running rampant throughout this nation. And we can certainly relate here with Habakkuk, can we not? For we too are living at a time and living in a world where we are seeing the moral fabric of our society torn apart as well. I mean, every day we can turn on the TV and see innocent people being shot and killed. Racism running rampant from sea to shining sea. Hate crimes taking place over here. Violent crimes taking place over there. And we know that the only lives that do not matter in this country are that of the unborn. And thus, brother Christian, sister Christian, with, with that being the world in which we are living in, there is absolutely nothing wrong like Habakkuk to lament over the current state of our nation. However, as we lament over the current state of our nation and of that of the world, let not our first desire be, church, to simply do so on Facebook or to squawk about it or to gripe about it, or to grumble about it, or to moan about it to our friends who will then just grumble about it to us right back. Because 
biblical lament church, as Mark Vrogrop describes, is not just us crying or venting or expressing sorrow. But instead, biblical lament is when the people of God pour out their fears and frustrations and sorrows to God for the purpose of renewing and or strengthening their confidence in him. In essence, the purpose of biblical lament is to trust in God more. Therefore, church, biblical lament is not us simply going up into a room, pounding on our keyboards, angry at the world, detached from God, all while we let the expletives fly. Instead, biblical lament is going to God when the pain and the confusion and the violence and the injustice surrounds us and we take our concerns and our troubles and our questions and our righteous anger and we plead with God to reconcile this situation, all while we trust that he will, just as he sees fit in his perfect timing for our good and for his eternal glory. Therefore, church, when you see wickedness and sin and violence and strife and all the other things that are causing this world to pass away, let not your first desire be to simply complain about it to others. Instead, let your first desire be, Christian, to go to the one who has authority and power and dominion over every situation to go instead to the Lord God himself, to the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and to plead with him to intercede. And whether God intercedes intervenes or reconciles the situation how you want him to or not, please know, Christian, you can still walk through the valley of the shadow of death with the light and comfort and peace, knowing that your God is God and that he is good and that he always, always, always does what is best for his children now and through eternity. Thus, walk confidently in that truth, Christian, even in the midst of your sufferings and not by your sight. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body realize that our God's ways, they are higher than our ways and that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. For we admit, Father, that when we look around at the world and see hate and violence and wickedness and sin, at times it seems that though nothing makes sense. However, let us be quickly be reminded, Father, That what happens in this world, the world that you created, the world that you sustain, and the world that you will ultimately redeem, it doesn't need to make sense to us because it makes sense to you and is panning out exactly as you see fit, all for our good and for your glory. Thus, help us, Father, to walk by faith in that and not by our sight. For your ways, God, are infinitely higher than our ways, and thus, no matter what we have been called to walk through, Father, in the here and now, let the words of our lips and the meditation of our hearts be that we love you, that we trust you, and to you alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how comforting it is to have a God who is sovereign who knows all things in love, who is all-powerful, all-good, omnibenevolent, 
and has looked upon us, his children, with grace. Our Father has our ultimate good in mind through eternity. Thus, let it be considered an honor to suffer on behalf of Christ. For this light and momentary affliction, it is doing something for our good and for the glory of God. Thus, no matter what the world is doing around us, let us not lose heart, let us not give up on it, but let us continue to pray Father, that you send your spirit to restrain evil in this world, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, your word will not return void. As Father, that I pray we may remain steadfast, salt and light in this world, until you come again. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.